So this is our Christmas uh, celebration service together, and I've been looking forward to this, and I trust you have. Trust that you are ready for Christmas, and whatever that means, right? Usually when somebody says, are you ready for Christmas, they're referring to, have you accomplished all of the necessary cultural tasks that relate to the Christmas time of year? Normally what they're asking you is, have you finished your shopping, right? Have you gone and done your shopping? And I need to tell you that this year, <clears throat> unlike many years in the past, I actually have Carol's present already. Got it like three weeks ago. Super stoked. So uh, that doesn't happen. Normally I'm a Christmas Eve shopper. So, so this is good. This is good stuff. Uh, some, some, uh, some food goes with this time of year, doesn't it? Your family have a special special food, maybe a certain meal that you eat at Christmas, and everybody looks forward to that, and that's part of the celebrations of Christmas. Oh, there's uh, there's the music clearly, right? You play the Christmas music. Maybe you've logged on to Pandora or something, and you're playing Christmas music around your house. We kind of like that at our house. Really enjoy the Christmas music. There's the decorating that goes on. You need to decorate your home and get all, all the special things. Perhaps you have a tree with certain uh, ornaments that are really important to your family. Maybe there's a history and a story behind each, uh, each ornament as you put it on the tree. All those kinds of family traditions. Then there's the whole uh, issue of lights uh, on your home. Right? Do, you, uh, do you put all those lights on your home? Or you do it the Scottish way, which is uh, you let your neighbors put the lights on their home and then you just admire them. <laughs> so that's another approach to the season. But it's all part of what culturally we talk about when we say, are you ready for Christmas? And then, of course, there's always the Christmas TV specials. I don't know what your favorite might be. Maybe it's White Christmas. Maybe it's uh, the Muppets Christmas Carol or... I mean, uh, who knows, but you probably have certain uh, seasonal Christmas shows that your family likes to watch, and that's all part of your celebrations as well. And those are all well and good. I mean, those are, those are all wonderful things, to be sure. But they have, for the most part, little or nothing to do with what it means to be ready for Christmas. All right? And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You sense deep down inside, yeah, I've got all of these things I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do. And, and I also know I need to prepare my heart. But somehow that's always a little bit more difficult. It's always a little bit more elusive. So, um, and that's true in my home too. And, and uh, sensing that this year, uh, Carol and I have been embarked on uh, reading a book. I'm going to commend this book to you. It's called uh, Rejoicing in Christ by a man by the name of Michael Reeves. I haven't quite finished it all the way yet, but it's, everything I've read so far has been really, really fine. And it's been a uh, really, uh, really helpful book, very, very thought-provoking book. So, um, and we, we've just started reading it together ourselves to get ready for Christmas, to focus our thoughts a little more on what it is that we are setting aside time to celebrate this year. As Art had referred to, the prophet Isaiah 700 years ago wrote in chapter 7 and verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. Beloved, that statement, God with us, that name, Emmanuel, is so profound. It is so dense with theological meaning. It is a a well, the depth of which we would spend a lifetime and never plumb. It is an incredible thought that God, creator and sustainer of all that is, dwelling in unapproachable light, absolutely pure, in which there is no hint or shadow of sin, would come and dwell with us. Amazing. And that is the message of Christmas. It's the real wonder of Christmas. God with us. And what I'd like to do this morning, this is not a typical Christmas message. I'm not going to turn to, to Luke or Matthew and exposit one of the, a piece of the traditional Christmas passages with you. What I'd like to do with you instead is to provide you a series of devotional thoughts, really, And uh, what I hope to do, I'll develop them just a little bit, but I won't necessarily be able to go super deep in any one of them. But what I'd like to do is hopefully plant a seed in you this morning that one or more of these 12 concepts or ideas would really grab your soul this morning and that it would occupy your thinking in the next week. That you would take the time to sit down, to meditate a little, to to contemplate the wonder, the amazement that God would dwell with us in the person of his son. Picking up off of the theme of the 12 days of Christmas, I have 12 words. So I have 12 words that come to mind when thinking about the amazing reality of God with us. There are not only 12, but these are 12. So, in the interest of time, we're going to need to move along here somewhat rapidly. So, the first word that comes to my mind when I think about the reality of God with us is the word conception. It is the word conception. And for that, we need to turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 31. The incarnation, the enfleshment of the second person of the triune God is a profound mystery. An incredibly profound mystery. God the Son entered space and time, took to himself human flesh, and became a man, a human being just like you and me, except without sin. Listen how it is recorded for us in Luke's gospel. This mystery, by the way, a mystery that, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he calls the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. Behold, verse 31, Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb... And bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. John puts it this way in his gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How we wish we had more information, don't we? How we wish that that somehow perhaps a a few more details could have been filled in, a, a couple of curiosity questions answered. But God doesn't have that for us. In fact, I think if he were to give us any more information, we wouldn't be able to process it anyways. It is the most incredible mystery. It is the most profound mystery. Second person of the triune God entered space and time. He was born by the direct action of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit overcame Mary, overshadowed Mary, and she conceived in her womb, a virgin conceived in her womb, the man, Jesus. It was a one-way trip. When he left heaven's glory, To be born of the virgin, to take to himself human flesh, it was a turnstile that moved in only one direction. He is, and will forevermore be, the incarnate one. He bears in his body, even now, the scars of his crucifixion. He is the God-man, Christ Jesus. And in the power of the Spirit of God, he was conceived. And beloved, it is by the power of the Spirit of God that we are reconceived. He became like us, that we might be like him. By the action of the Spirit of God. Conception. The next word that comes to my mind is condescension. Condescension. By taking to himself human flesh, by entering space and time, Jesus voluntarily laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He himself humbled himself that he might live as a man with no greater resource available to him than any other man. But to walk as a man in dependence on the Spirit of God. This is what it means for the incarnation. 
He was a child who grew to be a man. He lived a normal human life. He made use of all of the normal structures of human society. He grew up in a home. He went to school. He attended synagogue. He gave himself to the study of the Word of God. He walked in dependence on the Spirit of God. The text is quite clear. Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. These amazing little snippets, again, wishing for more, but having to be content with what we have. Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. After taking Jesus into the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law of Moses, his parents then departed. After their departure to Egypt to avoid Herod's murderous wrath, they returned and they returned to Galilee. And notice verse 40, it says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I think where it says the grace of God, you could substitute the Spirit of God very satisfactorily. He continued to grow in and become strong. That is that he, he grew up as a normal human child. He learned to walk. He learned to talk. He learned to live in, in obedience and submission to his parents. He, he played with his playmates. He stubbed his toe. He hurt his hand. He fell down. He cried. Everything that one would, would expect of a normal human child. Because that's who he is. That's who he is. Notice verse 52 after that remarkable little vignette at age 12 where he is in the temple astounding the religious authorities of Judaism. They cannot believe themselves. They're amazed at his understanding and his answers. Why? Because he is steeped in the word of God. That's why. But notice the summary statement in verse 52. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He grew up as a young man, totally given to the word of God, walking in dependence on the spirit of God. The prophet Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 11, speaks of just that reality. In verse 2, Isaiah 11 and verse 2, speaking of the coming Messiah, Where the prophet tells us that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. How did Jesus grow in wisdom and favor before God and man? He grew in, in wisdom and favor before God and man because the spirit of God rested upon him. And he gave himself wholeheartedly to the scriptures the study of the word of God. And, and beloved, that is, that is so encouraging to me because that's exactly what is available to you and I. 
As I meditate on these things, as I think on these things at Christmas time, I am moved to recognize that, that the path of wisdom that my Savior took is the path that is open and available to me. Turn to the left to Psalm 119 and verse 99. And see if you don't hear an echo of Jesus in the temple at age 12. Psalm 119 and verse 99. The psalmist writes, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. How did Jesus amaze those religious authorities? He amazed them because they had never met a child so steeped in the word of God. Psalm chapter 1, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 2. The preamble to the Proverbs. Proverbs 1 and verse 2. Why are the Proverbs written and, and correlated together, collected together for us? That we might know wisdom, verse 2, and instruction. That we might discern the sayings of understanding. Psalm 1 and verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. O beloved, when Jesus condescended, or should I say, when the second person of the triune God condescended to come and to take to himself human flesh, to be born the man Jesus, he voluntarily humbled himself to live the life that is available to us. A life that is dependent upon the Spirit of God, that it is built upon the Word of God. That is something to meditate on this Christmas season. Third, cross. Cross. The word cross comes to mind at this time of year because it is ultimately the reason for which Jesus came. He says it himself in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, <clears throat> pardon me, and Give his life a ransom for many. Why did God take to himself human flesh? It was so that he could die in the place of his people. Jesus is our substitute. He has restored us to the Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He that is God 
made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Matthew one twenty one. you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He was made like us, that we might be like him. He came to be our substitute. The illustration that, that Paul picks up on and is used in the New Testament is that of the bride and the bridegroom. Do you remember? Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And you, and you think about a wedding ceremony and the, and the, and the exchange of vows where the bride will say to the bridegroom, I give you all that I am and all that I have. And the bridegroom responds back to her, and I give you all that I am and all that I have. Do you see the beauty of this? Because here at the cross of Christ, we who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ have given him all that we are, filthy and vile that it is, all that we have, a boatload of sin. And he has given us all that he is and all that he has, all that he is the righteous one, all that he has, a perfect relationship with the Father. He has given it to us when we wed him at the moment of belief. I think about the cross. Fourth, I think about the word conqueror. The word conqueror. Jesus conquered death and shares that victory with us. Jesus conquered death and shares that victory with us. Hebrews chapter 2 certainly comes to mind. And verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Wow. He took to himself human flesh, so that he might die and then might rise again and with it burst the boundaries of the grave, crush the power of the evil one, give to us his life everlasting. Everlasting. He has conquered death and shares the victory with us. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 55. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. He has conquered death. He has removed the sting. The grave no longer is a place of fear for those who are united to Christ. His resurrection, beloved, is our resurrection. Paul calls him the first fruit of the resurrection. He is the first to rise to the newness of life that he then shares with all who are united with him by faith. He gives us what he has ever Lasting life, the very life of God, now shed in our soul. Jesus has conquered death. That's hard, isn't it? Yet Christmas time, the little, the little babe in the manger is a ferocious victor who has conquered death. He is the conqueror. Fifth. The fifth word that stands out to me is the word communion. Is the word communion. Jesus is in perfect relationship and fellowship with his Father. Perfect relationship, perfect fellowship with his Father. It is his joy. Jesus' greatest joy is the perfect unhindered relationship that he shares with the Father. And here's where it gets really cool. He shares that relationship with us. He shares that relationship with us. That is that that we can have and enjoy the same relationship with the Father that he himself has. Go to Matthew chapter 11. This is, this is mind-boggling. Jesus shares with us the intertrinitarian love and fellowship that has eternally existed and will eternally exist between Father and Son. He lets us in on it. He invites us to join in it. He brings us into it, not as a second-class citizen, but in full privilege to share that relationship. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Now listen, this is not just some sort of awareness. This is not knowledge in terms of the head. This is a, this is a knowing, a relational word. This is a word of relationship. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one is in the relationship 
with the Son except the Father, nor does anyone in relationship with the Father except the Son. And anyone, this is it, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That is, the Son has control over the relationship, the family identity. And he has authority to to open it up and invite others into the family. Do you understand that? He has the authority to throw wide open the kitchen door, as it were, and to invite us into the most intimate of places. The relationship between he and his father. His greatest joy he willingly shares with us. Notice verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus has just thrown open heaven for all who would come. He has invited us into the kitchen to sit around the the kitchen table and to enjoy the inter-Trinitarian relationship between father and son. It is mind-boggling. Notice John chapter 17 and verse 3. John 17 and verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. To know the Father and the Son. And to know them at at the level of intimacy that they share one with another. This is eternal life. And beloved, you know what else is so really, really cool about this? Is it's not just that, that we come into relationship, into the intimate relationship of the Father and the Son, like, like the hub of the wheel and we're a bunch of spokes connected into it. There's some truth to that picture, but, there, but it goes beyond that. And this is where I think it gets even, uh, even more glorious in a sense. And it, it's over in, chapter 20, or in uh, verse 22 of the same chapter. Where Jesus says, as a result of each of us by faith coming into the intimate fellowship of Father and Son, we also come into intimate fellowship with one another. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Think about that at Christmas time. Think about that at Christmas time. God sent his son into the world that he might bring you back to God, that he might bring you into the intimate fellowship and relationship of father and son to share it with you and 
by virtue of that reality, to put you in an intimate relationship with brother and sister in Christ. A relationship that transcends physical family identities. It transcends the highest human loyalties. It brings us into the family of God. What an incredible gift. Communion. Six, closeness. Closeness. It's kind of a derivative of this, but I, a little bit different. So it's the word closeness. We are given the same status as the Son Himself. We are brought into the same status as the, as the Son Himself. Now, now, let me develop this with you a little bit and I'll show you what I mean. Go to Galatians chapter 3. And again, I'm hoping I provoke you to uh, think. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Where Paul says, verse 26 of Galatians 3, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. To become a son of God. A son of God. Now this is where it gets really cool. It's not that you become a child of God. Paul specifically uses the word son. Sorry, ladies. But actually, when I explain this, you're not going to be sorry. You're going to be thrilled. You become a son of God. That is, that you become like the son. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. And by the way, it's okay to call women sons of God because uh, men, we're part of the bride of Christ, right? So it's okay. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. By which we cry out, Daddy, God. That is the the term of endearment. That is a term of intimacy. That That is the... The the familial term within a very close-knit family relationship. We have become sons of God by adoption. And we can take to our lips the words, Abba, Father. Go with me over to Mark chapter 14. And verse 36.
There in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the moment of his greatest need, in the hour of his greatest trial, when all the forces of hell are waging war against his soul, where he is at that moment in time on the precipice, on the edge of destruction, and where he cries out, saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In the moment of his greatest need, Jesus speaks the words, Abba, Father. When Paul says in Romans, by the spirit of the adoption, that we too can say, Abba, Father, you know he had this in his mind. He is communicating to us that we have been brought into the closest of relationships through Christ. That, that opens up a channel of communication that is so, so endearing, so, so intimate, so precious, so emotion-laden that we can vocalize what Jesus himself vocalized in his hour of greatest trial. Abba, Father, Daddy, please help me. Beloved, we can get no closer to God than the Son himself. And he throws open his relationship and says, come, join me. Join me. Compassion. Number seven, compassion. Hebrews chapter four. Verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Beloved, Jesus knows by personal experience what it is like to live a human life. All of the frailties of the human existence, he himself knows. He understands our weakness. He knows our frame. He does not sit in the heavens with the stern look of condemnation saying, why don't you measure up? But instead, his heart is full of compassion towards us. He, he knows what it is to weep. He knows what it is to, to, to suffer at the hands of sinful men. He, he knows the disappointments of life. He knows the hurts and the heartaches of life. He knows what's on your mind and heart right now. You're sitting here this morning. And you're thinking that Christmas is just not such a happy time for me. Jesus knows. 
He knows. And his heart is filled with compassion for you. He is filled with compassion. And because of that compassion, number eight, we have confidence. Number eight, confidence. Verse 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, we can confidently draw near to him knowing that he hears and he answers. And that our prayers don't just bounce off the sky. We talk to God through Christ. Confidence. Number nine, comfort. Comfort. Another word that comes to my mind at this time of year is the word comfort. Comfort, oh comfort, my people Israel. Actually, I want to take you to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to me. Jesus sovereignly subdues all our enemies. All of our trials. All of the afflictions that come upon us. By our own sin or the sin of someone else. And he subjugates them to his great purpose, that is, to work us good and conform us to his own image, to make us like him. What that means, beloved, is is that there is nothing random in this life. The pain that you are feeling right now, the trial that you are undergoing right now, is from the hands of a good God who absolutely loves you. And is working in and through this difficulty in your life to bring about good. To bring about good. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. But it gives us a view of a greater purpose. A greater goal. Beloved, I'm convinced that when we finally see him face to face. When we finally gain his perspective, that we will look back over our life and would not change a thing. And would not change a thing. It is theology that will hold your firm in the, in the storms of life. It is the anchor of your soul. The anchor of your soul. Jesus comforts us by letting us know that the difficulties of life have a purpose. They have a purpose. Ten, correction. Correction. Another word that comes to my mind is correction. And it's simply this, that Jesus transforms our sinful and faulty thinking 
by the power of the gospel. As we learn to, to believe and to trust what the scriptures tell us. It's as simple as that. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse six, or 17. Yeah, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Jesus corrects our thinking through his word. He is the word. He transforms us. 11, condemnation. Now, the word that comes to mind at this time of year as I think about the incarnation is condemnation. There is none. Romans chapter 8, and beginning in verse 1. Condemnation, there is none. And that is good news. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, beloved. Wow, that's good news. Wow, that's good news. Because just like you, there's more than enough that I could beat myself up over. Jesus has paid it all. He has freed me. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. And number 12, coming king. Coming king. When I think about this time of year, it doesn't end in a cradle or a feed trough in the middle of a stable. The trajectory of the story takes me all the way through to the coming king. I love the hymn, Joy to the World. It is my favorite Christmas hymn. And you know why it's my favorite Christmas hymn? Because it's about the returning millennial king. It's about the messianic king. It's about the second coming. Did you know that? It's a Christmas hymn all about the second coming. I love it. He is coming back. This Jesus, right, whom you have seen go in the same way he shall return. Jesus is coming again. The man Christ Jesus will again walk the earth, but this time not as a lowly servant. But it's the glorious Davidic king. He will right the wrongs. He will overturn the evil. He will banish disease and sickness and poverty and injustice. And all the things that, that from the depth of our heart we long to be delivered from. How long, O Lord, shall we wait? But Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. And until the king of creation returns, he has given us a task, hasn't he? He has given us some marching orders. He says in Matthew chapter 28, 
that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is coming again. And until he returns, in the meantime, he has given us something to do. And that is to spread the good news of his glorious gospel from one end of the creation to the other. As I think about Christmas, my heart is filled with so much wonder. My heart is filled with with ideas and and concepts and and realities that, that just... Defy words. (laughs) May God in his spirit use his word to grant you a glimpse of Christmas. Father, in such a short time, there is no way to do justice to the reality that you sent your son into this world. We have merely scratched the surface We have barely opened up the book. We have barely peeked into the jar, as it were. There is so much there. The Lord, may you help us as a people. A people who know Christ and are known by Christ. That in in these days before us, this week that stretches out, A week in which we still go to work, we still get up in the morning, we still tend to our children and our responsibilities. We have school, we have business responsibilities. So easy for day to go on to day and things to be crowded out. Oh Lord, may you help us to prepare our souls to celebrate the birth of your son. In whose name we pray, amen.